Douglas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 13, 1912 in England, The Triangular Tournament. The Imperial Cricket Conference, forerunner of today's International Cricket Council, was established in 1909, driven mostly by the insistence of South African representatives. Abe Bailey, the leading South African administrator, was encouraged by the recent success of South Africa against England to push for a triangular tournament between England, South Africa and Australia in 1909. With Australia already toing England in 1909, they weren't keen on sharing the spotlight with the South Africans, but agreed to a tournament to take place in 1912, hosted by England. This would involve the sides playing three tests against each other, with the winner being determined by who had the best overall record. As was the case for England at the time, all tests would be limited to three days. With the improvements that South Africa had made, it was expected that the three sides would be evenly matched and would achieve even greater interest in fans than a regular test series. It should be noted that one of the key drivers of the formation of the ICC was that South Africa, with its apartheid system beginning to be formalised, wanted to maintain their position at the highest levels of the cricketing world. By limiting the first iteration of the ICC to just the three nations, they pulled the ladder up behind them with other nations such as the West Indies and India were developing strongly. By also making it based on the British Empire, it helped lock out nascent cricket cultures in places like Argentina and the United States, leading to a long-term decline in cricket in those locations. By the time 1912 rolled around, the promise of an even contest between the sides had dissipated somewhat. South Africa had been thrashed 4-1 by Australia, whilst the following year England had achieved the same scoreline on their tour of Australia. Furthermore, the likelihood that Australia would send a full-strength squad was diminishing by the day, with the relationship between the best Australian players and the Australian Board of Control declining rapidly over payment and selection disputes. The drama of the selection of the Australian squad for the tournament came to a crescendo over the course of the fifth test of the 1911-12 series against England. During the match, it was announced that the invitations for Armstrong, Trumper, Cotter, Ransford and Carter had been withdrawn over their insistence of the selection of Frank Laver as the tour manager. Despite earlier accepting an invitation to tour, Clem Hill withdrew in solidarity and immediately retired from test cricket. English captain Plum Warner, one of the principal supporters of the triangular competition and fearing it would be a flop, pleaded with the Australian defectors to change their minds. He even sought assistance from the Prime Minister Andrew Fisher and the Governor-General to pressure both the players and the board to come to an arrangement. The actions of the board were still controversial amongst the public. Monty Noble declared that the board was a failure, having had six years to try to bring Australian cricket together, but not achieving it. Prominent politicians and other former Test cricketers also attacked the actions of the board, especially in regards to their lack of actual cricket experience. There was even a drive to privately send the six players, along with rising stars like Herbie Collins and Arthur Maley, as a separate team, but these died down when the Marleybone Cricket Club indicated they wouldn't recognise such a team. Trumper would travel to England to act as a journalist covering the matches, but would decline all offers to appear for Australia. With few options available to the Australian selectors, they turned to the most experienced Test cricketer to that time. He had first placed Test cricket back in 1890 and had been on the last seven tours of England. Once again, Sid Gregory would board the boat to England, this time as Australian Test captain. Sidney Edward Gregory was born on the 14th of April 1870. He was the scion of a great cricket family, son of inaugural Test player Ned Gregory and nephew of Australia's first Test captain Dave Gregory. With such a pedigree, much was expected, and he debuted for New South Wales in 1889. He hardly set the world alight in that first season, but obviously impressed someone as he was chosen to tour England in 1890. He struggled with the conditions both on that tour and the subsequent one in 1893. It wasn't until 1894, when he scored 201 against England in Sydney, that he demonstrated his excellent batting talent at the highest level. From then, he was a staple member of the side, only missing one test until the end of the 1999 tour of England. 
He was only 165 centimetres tall, leading to his nickname of Little Titch, but he had strong wrists and excellent footwork, allowing him to score against all types of bowling. He was also considered the best fielder in the world, specialising in the cover point region. Outside of cricket, he had struggled financially from a failed business and had to take a clerical job. Returning to the test side for the fifth test of the 1911-12 series, he had acquitted himself well, giving the board hope that the bright and happy 42-year-old would be able to chart a course for the touring side aiming to gain revenge for the humiliation the previous summer. The squad that Gregory would lead was one of the least experienced that had toured England in many years. 1909 tourists Charlie McCartney, Warren Bardsley, Bill Whitty and backup wicketkeeper William Barlow Karkeek accepted invitations to join the squad, whilst Charlie Calloway, Jimmy Matthews, Jerry Hazlitt, Roy Minnett and John McLaren had all played test cricket before, although none had played more than nine matches. Five others would make up the touring squad. With Horden not touring due to his dentistry commitments, his fellow New South Wales googly bowler Sid Emery was chosen. Dave Smith, who had captained Essendon to the 1911 VFL Premiership, but was also a decent first-class batsman, was included. The final three players all came from South Australia. These were Claude Jennings, an opening batsman, Harold Webster, a wicketkeeper who had only made his first-class debut that season, and batsman Edgar Main. Main's selection owed much to the fact that when Hill quit the selection panel, the South Australian Cricket Association chose Maine to replace him as their representative. Maine promptly chose himself on the tour. The final act before the tour departed was to determine who would be the manager. McAllister, one of the principal drivers of the strife, was sure he'd get the nomination. However, the head New South Wales delegate, McAllone, switched his vote to a New South Wales candidate despite promising McAllister his support. In response, the Victorian representative switched their vote to Queensland's nominee, George Crouch. Crouch, who had played five first-class matches between 1903 and 1906, therefore got the job. He had never managed a cricket side, though. Along with Gregory, who was not a stern disciplinarian in the mould of previous touring captains like Darling and Noble, Crouch's lack of experience would cause issues as players, many of whom felt their places could be rescinded at any time the big six were brought back into the fold, acted without care and caused great damage to the tourist reputation. The team departed for England at the end of March, with the first match in England at the beginning of May. Like other tours, there was a full range of games against county and other representative sides, as well as the tests. There were six matches played in the lead-up to the Australians' first test of the tournament, which would be against South Africa in Manchester. They made an inauspicious start, losing their opening game to Nottinghamshire by six wickets, despite leading on the first innings. Things improved in the next match, beating Northamptonshire by an innings, with Gregory and McCartney scoring centuries, and Emery taking 12 wickets. They followed this up with another innings victory against Essex, featuring a double century for McCartney and 180 for Bardsley, whilst Emery took another seven wickets. McCartney and Emery continued their good form in the next match against Surrey, with McCartney scoring his third hundred on the trot and Emery taking 11 wickets in another win. A Bardsley century and nine wickets for Callaway saw the Australians bring up four wins a row against the MCC, whilst Oxford University were dealt with easily. The Australians therefore went into the first test on a five-game winning streak, giving many confidence they would perform above expectations. Their opponent South Africa had also demonstrated good form in the lead-up, winning three and drawing two of their six county games. Half the side selected for the first test was known to the Australians for the 1910-11 tour, with Norse, Faulkner, Snook, Schwartz and Pegler all featuring. Whilst Vogler wasn't in England, the fourth of the famous googly quartet, Gordon White, who had missed the previous Australian tour, was in the side. New players included batsmen Gerald Hardigan, Roland Beaumont and Herbie Taylor, 
the latter of whom was only 23 and had high expectations of him, whilst Thomas Ward had taken over wicket-keeping duties from the former captain Percy Sherwell. The final spot was for the new captain, Frank Winchell. Mitchell had formerly played for England in two tests on a tour of South Africa in 1898-99 and settled in the country, returning to his homeland as a South African leader. The Australians mostly picked players for the match who had previous test experience, with only McLaren being left out from those who'd played before. The three debutants were wicketkeeper Karkeek, who had toured without playing a test in 1909, Emery and Jennings. The Old Trafford pitch was soft from recent rain, but Gregory won the toss and had no hesitation in choosing to bat. The Australians opened with Jennings and Callaway, whilst the South Africans began with the Googlies of Faulkner and mediums of Norse. Jennings took up the attack early, scoring quickly and playing shots on both sides of the wicket. He was harsh against Norse, who was soon replaced by Pegler. Callaway at the other end was more dour, but continued to turn the strike over. 50 came up in quick time, although Callaway was lucky as two balls from Pegler only just missed his wickets. Schwartz replaced Faulkner, but it was Pegler who got the breakthrough, having Jennings caught at mid-on for a quick fire 32. McCartney joined Callaway with a score on 62. He took up Jennings' rate of scoring, being especially strong through the offside with two cover drives of four, as well as a late cup boundary. Just as he looked like taking the game away from the South Africans, he played a wild slog at a straight one from Pegler and was bowled for 21. Bardsley joined Callaway, who had unobtrusively moved into the 30s, on 2 for 92. The new man started watchfully, but after a time he took advantage of loose balls, of which there was a lot from the South African bowlers. The score moved past 100 and continued to accelerate. Callaway gave a stumping chance just before he reached his 50, but Ward was unable to complete the opportunity, with Callaway bringing up the milestone soon after. Bardsley was now moving quickly, with strong play through the onside being a feature. Mitchell rotated through his options, but other than Pegler and Schwartz, they could do little to slow the Australian attack. Bardsley was able to pass 50 much quicker than Callaway had, as the two put on a century stand. Ward missed another chance off Callaway when he was on 71, a much easier stumping than the first one, whilst he also dropped Bardsley when he was on 68. With both players now approaching centuries, the biggest focus was on who could get there first. Bardsley won the race, bringing up his 100 after only two hours of the crease, his fourth in test matches. Callaway brought up his maiden ton soon after. The two had put on a 200-run partnership before they were separated, with Callaway caught behind off Pegler for 114. He'd only hit five fours in three hours, but had given the Australians a strong platform. 20 runs later, Bardsley also departed, popping a ball back up the pitch with Bowler White diving forward to take a good catch. He made 124 in just over two hours, with 11 fours and two sixes. Minnick could only manage 12 before he fell, caught by Schwartz off his own bowling. With Matthews and Gregory at the crease, the Australians went to tee at 5 for 359. Following the break, Gregory took his score onto 37 before he was stumped off Pegler at 375, having put on 47 with Matthews. This brought about a collapse. Emery, Hazlitt and Karkeek all departed within the space of nine runs, leaving the Australians at 9 for 385. With Witty joining Matthews, the two decided to hit out. Witty played powerfully down the ground, whilst Matthews, despite being unconvincing with his stroke play, also took chances that came off. The South Africans dropped two more catches, including one that injured White, sending him from the field. Finally, after adding 63, Witty was stumped off Pegler for 33, ending the innings. Matthews was left 49 not out as the Australians posted 448. Pegler was the pick of the bowlers, taking 6 for 105 in 45 overs, while Schwartz claimed three wickets, although he went at almost five runs and over. There was about 15 minutes remaining in the day, with Hardigan and Taylor opening for South Africa. Bowling the second over, Witty sent Taylor back for a duck, caught by Karkeek. Norse replaced him and managed to see out the day, with the South Africans at 1 for 16. The score moved to 30 before the second wicket fell, with Norse bowled by Witty for 17 with one that kept low. He was replaced by Snook. 
the bowling of Whitty and Hazlitt was very accurate, making run scoring difficult. The pressure eventually got to Snook, who played Whitty onto his wicket and was out for seven. South Africa's star batsman Faulkner came to the crease at three for 42. The pair took the score beyond 50 before Emery was introduced, who gained his first test wicket by having Hardigan caught behind for 25. White came out at 4 for 54, struggling somewhat with the hand injury that he'd suffered the previous day. Faulkner, after some patience, then started to raise his score, particularly through some powerful square cuts. At the other end, White could only play through glances, with the Orcas in particular causing him pain whilst he played them. The score moved towards 100 when Faulkner made a mistake on 43, popping one up to mid-on. However, Witty dropped a simple chance. This allowed Faulkner to bring up his 50, with the South Africans able to go to lunch having taken their score into the 130s. Soon after the break, White was trapped LBW by Witty for 22, having shared an 89-run stand with Faulkner. The South African captain came next, but struggled with the angle and swing from left arm of Witty, and was eventually clean bowled for 11. This left them at 6 for 167, still trailing by 281 runs. Schwartz joined Faulkner and was able to take the score onto 200 before a fast off break from Hazlitt breached Schwartz's defences, sending him back to the pavilion for 19. This brought Beaumont to the crease. He was present as Faulkner brought up his century, his fourth in tests and third against Australia. Beaumont hit Emery twice for boundaries and helped push South Africa past 250. They were looking like going past the follow-on target when Matthews was introduced to the game. He struck with the score on 265, with Beaumont bowled by a top spinner for 31. Pegler came in, but only lasted a ball as he was trapped LBW by Matthews. The final man, Ward, came in to face a hat-trick ball, but he suffered the same fate as Pegler, a first ball duck. Matthews had thus become the third Australian to claim a hat-trick after Spotheth and Hugh Trumbull. Matthews finished with the figures of 3 for 16, but Witty was the pick of the bowlers with 5 for 55, whilst Faulkner was unbeaten on 122 with 13 boundaries. There was a little over an hour and a quarter left in the day, with Gregory enforcing the follow-on being 183 runs ahead. South Africa opened with Hardigan and Faulkner, but Faulkner was exhausted after his four and a half hours at the crease in the previous innings and was clean bowled for a duck by Callaway in the first over. This set the tone for the South African innings. Norse joined Hardigan and the two took the score onto 22 before both departed at that total, with Hardigan bowled for four by Callaway, whilst Norse was caught at third man by Bardsley off Witty for 18. Snook and Taylor combined for a time before Snook was bowled for nine by Witty. White joined Taylor and the two looked the most secure partnership of the innings, adding 27 for the fifth wicket. When it looked as if the South Africans would be able to get to the end of the day without further loss, Callaway struck, having White caught behind for nine. In the next over, Matthews got his first of the innings, bowling Taylor for 21. Schwartz was then caught and bowled next ball. Matthews then achieved an amazing feat by having Ward here to catch back to him, completing his second hat-trick of the day, with Ward being the third victim on both occasions. The South Africans had thus lost four wickets for no runs and were two wickets away from an innings defeat. Beaumont played some big shots in compiling 17, but Callaway claimed the final two wickets to end the South African innings for 95. This saw Callaway gaining his first Test Fifer to go with his century, thus becoming the first Australian to do so in the same match. The South African collapse had given the Australians a great start to the tournament, winning by an innings and 88 runs. However, the emphatic nature of the win hurt the prospects for the rest of the tournament, as it confirmed the belief held by the public that the South Africans would be uncompetitive, lessening interest. The Australians were in fine form, winning six matches on the trot. However, after a dry May, the English heavens began to open, causing sodden grounds and many rain delays, affecting the ability of matches to be completed. The next four of the Australians' tour matches were rain-impacted draws. They then lost low-scoring encounters to Lancashire by 24 and Surrey by 21 runs before bouncing back against Somerset to win by 10 wickets.
Meanwhile, the triangular tournament had continued, with England playing their first match against South Africa at Lords. The English were led by Charles Fry, who had turned down the opportunity to captain the English against Australia on the 1911-1912 tour. He led a side that featured many of the stars of that successful adventure, with Rhodes, Hobbs, Woolley, Smith, Foster and Barnes all featuring, as well as Plum Warner, who played under Fry's captaincy. Meanwhile, South Africa called Charles Llewellyn, who had been playing league cricket for Accrington, out of first-class retirement to play for them in their first test against England. In the match, South Africa were thrashed by an innings and 62 runs, being bowled out for 58 in the first innings, with five wickets apiece to Foster and Barnes. Reg Spooner scored a century for the English, whilst Woolley made 73 as they posted 337, with Pegler taking 7 for 65. South Africa batted better in their second innings, totalling 217, with Llewellyn scoring 75, but again Barnes dominated, claiming 6 for 85, whilst Foster took 3. The third match of the triangular tournament, the first between Australia and England, took place at Lords at the end of June. England made two changes from their victorious side in the previous test, with Jack Hearn coming in for Gilbert Jessup, whilst they gave a debut to left-arm fast-medium bowler Harry Dean from Lancashire in the place of Brearley. The Australians also made a change, bringing in Dave Smith, who had scored a century in the unsuccessful chase against Surrey, for his debut in the place of the underperforming minute. Fry won the toss and chose to bat, with Hobbs and Rhodes opening. However, after only two overs, play was stopped for over two hours due to a storm. When the match resumed, Whitty and Hazlitt continued the attack on what was now a fairly difficult wicket. However, the batsmen were up to the challenge, with Rhodes especially scoring fluently. They were very patient at playing the ball off the pitch and took advantage of some loose bowling, although Rhodes played one or two shots dangerously through the slips. He was able to raise a 50, scoring at double the rate of Hobbs, before another shower sent the players from the field with a score at number 77. After another hour rain delay, play resumed. Hobbs found his footing, quickly racing to his own 50 and nearly overtaking his partner. The score was raised to 112 before the first wicket fell, with Rhodes edging Callaway behind, out for 59. He was replaced by Spooner, who struggled for his timing and was out for one, caught at Shaw Lake off Callaway. This brought Fry in to join Hobbs, who was now in the 60s. Hobbs began to take more risks, including a wild slog off Callaway that landed safely in the outfield. Emery was brought on, but he struggled with his lengths, alternating between long hops and full tosses. Hobbs took full advantage of these, finding numerous boundaries and racing towards his century. He brought it up after just over two and a half hours of batting. He dominated 74-run Sam with Fry, but was then out for 107 when he was bowled by a rungan from Emery. He'd hit 15 fours and was considered one of his finest knocks considering the conditions. Warner joined Fry at 3 for 197, but could only manage 4 before he was bowled on the last ball of the day from Emery for 4. Fry was left 24 not out as the English finished the day on 4 for 211. Play was delayed by half an hour on the second day, with Woolley joining Fry upon the resumption. The pair added 30 runs in as many minutes before Rain sent the players from the field once again. It was only light at first, but continued to get heavier, leading to be played being called off for the second day. There was still hope for a result in the final day given the nature of the pitch, with the Australians not being used to wet conditions. Many expected Fry to declare straight away, but he continued the innings in bright sunshine, resuming at 4 for 241. Fry was out almost immediately, run out trying to take a risky single for 42. Foster joined Woolley and they attacked. This brought about Woolley's dismissal when he was caught off Hazlitt for 20. Foster raced to 20 in as many minutes before he fell to Whitty. Hearn and Smith continued in the same vein, taking the score onto 310 before Fry felt comfortable declaring, just before midday. There was a great hope that the English would be able to run through the Australians twice in the remaining time on the challenging pitch. However, cloud cover passed over the ground at this time and hung around, lessening the power of the sun to create a more difficult wicket. Jennings and Callaway opened, with Callaway settling into Stonewall, taking half an hour to score his first run. 
Jennings was more attacking, scoring 21 of the first 27 runs before finally glancing Foster to be caught behind. This brought McCartney to the crease. Whilst Callaway used the slow nature of the pitch to aid in his defence, playing as late and as far back as possible to catch any movement, even to half volleys, McCartney was more aggressive, using his feet to get to the pitch of the ball, whilst also pulling gracefully. The pair were able to get to lunch without further loss with the score at 1 for 57. Callaway took a further 25 minutes after lunch to add to his score of 16, but McCartney sparkled, including pulling a half-tracker from Barnes to 6. Hearn was tried, but struggled to contain the run scoring, with even Callaway comfortable enough to drive him for 4. McCartney was able to move past the half-century, and no English bowler could restrict him. He found the boundary with ease, and looked to be set for a fantastic test century. However, upon reaching 99, he tickled a ball from Foster down the leg side, and was caught by the keeper. He batted for just over two hours and hit 13 fours and a six, dominating a 146-run stand with Callaway. Bardsley joined Callaway with a total at two for 173, with the match now heading for a draw. Callaway continued to deny himself any attacking stroke, frustrating the spectators, before bringing up a slow half-century. Bardsley batted in a similar fashion, compiling only 20 run runs in an hour and a half at the crease. The total crawled to 226 before Bardsley was dismissed, trapped LBW by Rhodes. Shortly afterwards, Callaway's vigil ended, bowl by one that kept low from Rhodes. His 61 had taken almost four and a half hours and had prevented any chance of an English victory. Following this, there was little interest left in the game. Debutant D managed to grab two wickets, having Gregory caught it slip for 10 before bowling Matthews for a second ball duck. Smith and Hazlitt hit out at the end, but when Hazlitt was dismissed for 18 by Rhodes, the match was called off. The Australians had posted 7 for 282 in response to England's first innings total, leaving their series tied at nil-nil. The match was the final time that Plum Warner featured in Test cricket. He only averaged 23 in his 15 tests with one century, but was more important for his masterminding of two away Ashes series victories in 1903-04 and 1911-12. This was not the last the Australians would see of Warner though. He would remain involved in the game as a prominent administrator and would play a key role in the Borderline series as the English manager. The Australians had five matches to play prior to their third test of the tournament, which would be against South Africa at Lords. Gregory saved Australia from an innings defeat against Essex with a rearguard century. The match against Yorkshire was a rain-affected draw, whilst they lost to Lancashire by eight wickets, with Harry Dean taking 11 wickets for the locals. Both matches against Scotland were draws, before the Australians headed back to London to take on the Springboks. Meanwhile, England and South Africa had met for the second time, this time at Leeds. It ended in another comfortable English victory, this time by 174 runs. Barnes was again the destroyer, taking 10 wickets in the match. This test marked the end of Gilbert Jessop's test career. Despite never really carrying his county form into tests, he remained a memorable figure, mostly due to his extraordinary 76 ball 100 at the Oval in 1902, a feat which remains a record for the fastest test century by an English batsman. He would live on as a much-respected figure, passing away in 1955 at the age of 80. There were three changes to the South Africans from the previous times they had played Australia. Hardigan, Beaumont and Snook were out, while Stricker, Llewellyn, both of whom played against Australia in 1910-11, and Lewis Tankred, who had played in the first ever Australia-South Africa test in 1902, were included. The Australians also made two changes from their previous test, with Emery and Smith being dropped. Minute was recalled, whilst Maine was brought in to make his test debut. Perfect weather greeted the players for the first day. Mitchell won the toss and chose to bat on a fast bouncy wicket. They opened with Faulkner and Tancred, whilst Gregory started with Minnett and Witty. Faulkner struggled from the outset, his form having deserted him since the first test. He edged his way to five before being bowled by Witty. In the next over, new batsman White was caught down the leg side by Karkik off Minnett for a duck. Llewellyn entered at two for 25 and hit a fine boundary pass point, but then became Minnett's second victim, caught it slip off a ball that jagged away from him. 
Norse joined Tancred, who was batting doggedly. Norse would make it to double figures, but was fortunate to survive when he popped one from Hazlitt up to mid-on, only for Witty to drop the catch. This didn't cost the Australians, as next over from Hazlitt, he was bowled for 11. This brought Taylor to the crease at 4 for 56. The two batsmen looked to hold out until the break, but on the stroke of lunch, Tancred was out LBW to Matthews. He'd made 31 runs in 100 minutes, but left the South Africans 5 down on 71. Following the break though, Stricker joined Taylor and the two built a substantial partnership. Most of the runs came in boundaries as they took the attack to the Australian bowlers. They were helped by a deplorable effort in the field by the Australians, who dropped multitude of catches and misfielded often, with Taylor being missed on 27 at third man, the most costly of them. They put on 97 runs in an hour, with Taylor bringing up a half century. Stricker, on the verge of that milestone, had his luck finally run out, trapped LBW by Callaway. He'd made 48, which included 9 boundaries. Mitchell replaced him and helped Taylor take the total past 200, before he was bowled by Witty for 12. Witty then bowled Schwartz for a duck, leaving the South Africans at 8 for 213. More support for Taylor was found from Pegler, who hit a quick-fire 25 to take the total to 250 before he was caught off Witty. This left Taylor, who was in the 80s, with only Ward to partner him. He attempted to hit his way to a maiden 100, surviving another drop on 83, before he was caught a deep point for 93, which included 12 boundaries, ending the innings on 263. Witty claimed four wickets, continuing his good form against the South Africans, whilst Minnett and Hazlitt had two each. There was still well over an hour left in the day's play as the Australians began their reply. They had the worst possible beginning, with Jennings bowled by Norse for a duck in the opening over. Worse was to come when McCartney, batting at three, departed the same bowler for nine, with only 14 on the board. However, Bardsley joined Callaway, and the two attempted to grind down the bowling through stubborn defence. As boring as the cricket was for the spectators, it was effective as Mitchell began to cycle through his options looking for another breakthrough. As the bowlers began to err, the two batsmen managed to find more run-scoring opportunities and were able to make their way to stumps without further damage, although Callaway was missed by the keeper when on 24. The Australian total at the end of the day was 86, with Callaway on 33 and Bardsley 32. Another perfect day awaited the players on day two. The batsmen played defensive cricket against some tight bowling, particularly from Norse. As the total passed 100, they started to open up more, with Bardsley playing some strong shots through the onside, whilst Callaway surprised onlookers with an out-of-character cross-batted boundary. Both batsmen passed 50 and, with little threat from the bowling, the race was now on to see who could reach their century first. Bardsley achieved this, his fifth in test, before he was badly missed by White at third man. The Australian pair took the total to within 10 runs of the South Africans when Callaway brought up his second century of the series, only to be out shortly after for 102, trapped LBW by Faulkner. His typically dour innings had taken almost four hours and included seven boundaries, having shared a 242-run stand with Bardsley, a new record for the third wicket in tests. New batsman Gregory could only manage five before he was bowled by Llewellyn, but Main joined Bardsley to see through to lunch. Bardsley reached his 150 by the break, with Australian total on the brink of 300. Following lunch, Bardsley took his score onto 164 before he was finally dismissed, trapped LBW by Llewellyn. His innings included 15 boundaries and a 6, departing with a score at 5 for 316. Minute joined Maine. The new batsman hit out for a time, taking the total to 350 before Pegler came on to bowl. He had Maine stumped for 23 before having new batsman Matthews caught by Faulkner for 9. Now 7 for 375. The end came quickly for the Australians. Hazlitt was bowled for a duck by Norse, whilst Minnett fell to Pegler for a quick fire 39. Pegler also claimed the final wicket of Witty to end the Australian innings on 390. Pegler had claimed four of the last five wickets to fall, whilst Norse had taken three for the innings. The Australians had a lead of 127 going into the South Africa's second innings. Stricker and Tancred opened, with Stricker holding up an end whilst Tancred attacked. However, Tancred came unstuck when on 19, caught on the boundary of Hazlitt.
White replaced him and batted in the same fashion, helping the total move quickly past 50, but was then clean bowled by Matthews. This saw T taken with a score at 2 for 54. During the T break, King George V arrived at the ground and met both sides. The King will remain to watch the final session. Following T, Llewellyn came to the crease. He started strongly, playing some crisp straight drives. However, he lost Tricker soon after, bowled by a hazard delivery that came back in with the Lord's slope, for a slow 13. Norse arrived and played second fiddle to Llewellyn, who was batting beautifully. The two put on 40 runs, taking the total past 100 before Callaway trapped Norse LBW for 10. Faulkner came in with a score of 4 for 102, still trailing by 25 runs. The pair were able to knock off the deficit, with Llewellyn bringing up his half-century, but the South Africans only 7 in front, Llewellyn played a wild slog and was bowled by McCartney. He'd made 59 with 9 boundaries, most of them straight drives. Two runs later, Faulkner was caught and bowled by Matthews for 6. Mitchell, who could only manage 3, and Schwartz, who was out for 1, both fell to Matthews, with stumps being called with Schwartz dismissal. Taylor was not out 5, as the South African score sat at 8 for 146, leading by only 19 runs. Rain was the only thing that could save the South Africans, but for the first time in a while a test match managed to go three days without seeing any poor weather. The end came quickly for the Springboks. Newman Pegler hit out making 14, but was then caught at slip off McCartney. Last man Ward made 7 before he was bowled by the same bowler, ending the innings. With Taylor 10 not out, the South Africans posted 173. Matthews was a pick of the bowlers with 4 wickets, whilst McCartney took 3. The Australians only had 47 runs to make in order to win the test. Opening with Jennings and Maine, they faced little difficulty in doing so, scoring the runs in under 30 minutes without loss. Maine made 25, whilst Jennings posted 22 with 5 fours. This gave the Australians their second win of the tournament and some good confidence heading into the next test against the English. This is the end of part 1 of our episode covering the 1912 Triangular Tournament. Part 2, where we will see how the series plays out, will be released shortly. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.